I've never experienced sexual harassment like within like my workplace or or even in kind of that wider I guess like at events and things like that it's not been something that I that I've had to deal with which is great but it's something that I am almost kind of braced for like there's a part of me that sees it as as an inevitability that was Lauren a survivor of sexual assault talking about the increased anxiety she lives with as a result of PTSD and how that can show up when you're a female developer working in the tech sector. It's important to say at the start of this episode that while Lauren doesn't share any specifics, we do talk frequently about sexual assault and rape. In this episode of Silent Superheroes, Lauren will give us some ideas for what to say to somebody if they tell you that they've been sexually assaulted. We'll talk about embracing trial and error when you're learning to manage PTSD, and Lauren will share some of the ways her employer has created emotional safety. Remember... Lauren and I are talking about our personal experiences with mental illness. If you're living with a mental illness and you're considering changing your treatment plan, please consult with a trained medical professional. If you have any concerns about your mental health, there are numbers you can call at the end of the episode. My name's James Pratt. I'm the host of Silent Superheroes, and I'm really glad that you're here. Welcome to the Silent Superheroes Podcast, a series of frank conversations about mental health at work. Welcome to Silent Superheroes. I'm here with today's guest, Lauren. Lauren, welcome to the show. Thank you. It seems appropriate to ask you, who are you and what do you do? Uh, so my name's Lauren. Uh, I'm, a, I'm an engineer, a, a full-stack web developer working in Australia. I also quite recently became a team lead. What is it that we're going to talk about today? I suppose I can talk to you uh, a little bit about my mental illness, my, you know, sort of the path that I've gone through, bring me where I am today. Post-traumatic stress, um, as I assume most people know, but it's an anxiety disorder that stems from uh, one or more traumatic incidents that have happened to, to someone in their past. In my case, uh, that was a sexual assault rape when I was 15. So quite young, yeah, formative years. That being, I guess, being so young, um, not really knowing how to like talk about any of those kinds of things. I guess also having a lot of trouble accepting that that is what had happened to me. I sort of ignored it for quite some time, at least a year and a half before I told any medical professional about what had happened, really a year until I told anyone at all. So I guess that's the kind of thing like, like left untreated that sort of snowballed a little bit, became a very, very anxious person, dropped out of high school. I guess even, you know, by the time I actually sort of started being able to talk about it, tell people what had happened, it, things also just like they got worse before they got better, which is quite common. I think once you sort of accept that this horrible thing has happened to you and you're trying to piece together your, the world and your place in the world and your understanding of how safe you are and things like that. So this thing built up for you in the course of a, of a year and you got to a point where you couldn't ignore it. What was changing over time? I guess by that point, it would have been around the time that I was leaving high school. I was not coping at school very well at all. I And I'd previously been like not an amazing student, but not a bad one, you know, like B average kind of A's in some things, you know, C's in others. I wasn't bad at school. I didn't have trouble with friends or anything like that. 
I became quite an anxious person. I remember I had this terrible English teacher at one point in a class full of some of the more disruptive students. And he just used to lose his temper and scream at the whole class, like basically every class that we had. That was how it would end. I guess that probably would have been around the time that I had started having panic attacks, but I didn't know what they were. I think it was probably not until I was 17 that I actually could understand what was happening to my body when when I had panic attacks. What's been your experience of that? If you could describe what that's like, what would you say? They sort of range. Like I I think, I guess people who have not experienced panic attacks probably assume that they always feel the same, like that they just want this one really, really extreme thing. I have had mild panic attacks and I've had really severe panic attacks. So there's a bit of a spectrum. They can range anywhere from just uncontrollably crying, like, you know, just seeming quite distressed and inconsolable up to like hyperventilating kind of on the floor in a ball, like not really not being able to speak. Many people liken them to the experience of possibly having a heart attack. In fact, like people who have panic attacks like later in life and have not experienced them and don't know what they are often do actually think that they, they might be experiencing a heart attack or something like that um, because you get this constricting in your your chest and your heart's beating like a million miles a minute. And, you know, there's these definitely these physical signs that people associate with heart attacks. You said it took you a year. What was it that made you feel safe enough to tell somebody eventually? My mother was the first person that I told and I wrote her a letter because I didn't know how to say any of it in person. Yeah. What was her reaction to that? I remember sitting while she read the letter and like just being in the room with her and her crying. And I think she said something about wishing that she could just wrap me in cotton wool. (laughs) I mean, she obviously knew by that point that things were not right. And we haven't really talked about it, to be honest, but I I wonder if some, in some ways it was almost a relief to at least know what was going on for her. Yeah. Around that time, I mean, I had already, I believe, kind of been to a GP and talked about mental health, not really about what had actually happened, but just things don't feel right kind of thing. And so I think it was kind of a process then of us trying to figure out how we handle my treatment. I mean, I think that she just, she didn't know, none of us knew, like, what to do. (laughs) And I think about it, it must be such a horrible thing to find out about your daughter. It seems almost ludicrous, but in some ways I feel like it was easier for me to experience all of that than than, um, for someone like my mother to to have to hear about it. But I find the the act of telling people and especially the act of telling people that love me and are really, really close to me actually probably still one of the biggest sort of painful thing like things that I still need to go through. I usually find that once I've had like that conversation once or twice with someone or if I'm just talking to someone who I'm less close with and I'm less worried about their their feelings about it, that I can actually talk about it quite freely, which is great. But yeah, I often find myself managing the the reactions of others, which is, I guess, just like a little bit of an added burden that comes with having been through something like that. I mean, I, I wonder for you, you know, you've had this thing that you've been living with and wrestling with, and you finally decided, you know, I can't take this on alone. And in bringing it to somebody else, maybe there's some amount of relief there or sense of moving forward, maybe? Yeah, absolutely. I think I did feel like that. It was, it wasn't exactly like I I knew what I thought would change by doing that or, you know, how any of that would go. But there was definitely an element of that. The more I was able to open up to people for the most part, the better things got. I do think I felt like kind of a sense of relief in, in at least, yeah, reaching out to like one person and then maybe 
one more person and it's this slow kind of thing, especially at the start. So there may be people listening to this who have already or at some point in the future, somebody that they know and love comes to them and says, I was raped. What are some of the things that that person should be thinking about doing, saying, not saying in that moment? I mean, one of the biggest things that tends to happen um, when people come forward to with these sorts of things is there's a lot of feelings of guilt, of personal responsibility, of like, is this my fault? So really try like as hard as you can, I think, to steer clear of anything that, you know, even implies that, you know, this person kind of could be at fault. Like you just want to listen. You want to take them at face value. Tell them that you're that you're here and that you're happy to like maybe not happy is not maybe not the best word. You are, you know, you're there to listen to them however much they want to talk about it is up to them. I think there is a a want for people to kind of probe and ask questions and try and understand better. And I think that comes from a, a good place, but it can also be really confronting, especially if you are you know, one of the first few people that a victim is coming to. What is useful at the end of that conversation for that person to have happened in your experience? I know that you, you know, you cannot speak for all victims of rape. I guess just knowing that there's someone kind of on their side that's there if they need more support, just having someone who is there sort of trying to understand what they've been through. I think also like reinforcing that telling people is a good thing is also quite important. So effect, like thank them for telling you. Bravery is the, like, you know, the word that I used about like myself earlier. And I think that was a word that my mother had used. And at the time, like you don't feel that way. <laughs> it probably took quite a while for me to look back on that and think, oh, you were right. Like that was very brave. It was. I guess having someone say that was helpful. And it's something that I have then like, you know, gone on to say to friends and, you know, not even necessarily a sexual assault, although sometimes yes, but really helping people to feel like the choices they like that they've made to tell people are a positive one. You understand that it's really, really hard and that makes it a brave thing to do. Grateful that your mum offered you support. One would hope, of course, that a parent would do that, but I don't know all parents would have the, the right emotional resources to, to deal with that situation. You went from there to being diagnosed with PTSD. So why don't you walk us down that road? I don't remember, I guess, a time of actually being officially diagnosed with PTSD. But I saw a few different psychologists after speaking to the GP, the general practitioner, who I guess a lot of people I spoke to just heard the things that I was experiencing um, probably before the panic attacks had become as big a part of of my symptoms and they just kind of heard depression. So my GP put me on Zoloft, an antidepressant, SSRI. I had a quite a poor reaction to that. Within the first few weeks of being on it, I then had a suicide attempt. And I guess that was also like just a very big trigger of, okay, things are really, really not good. I ended up in the ER. From there was was assigned a psychologist at that hospital um, ongoing. I never told him about the rape. I just thought I just obviously was not at a place to be able to, to have that conversation with a practical stranger. Um, I didn't really understand the, the process of therapy and all of those sorts of things. I had a session with a woman outside of that hospital. I think potentially had been referred by the psychologist from 
that hospital to this like sort of associated clinic. By that time, I was self-medicating a lot with cannabis. And I remember having this first session with this woman going into the waiting room and hearing her shouting at the patient in the room before me and seeing that patient leave in tears and then going in. Was that some kind of therapeutic technique, do you think? <laughs> like, um, so I think I mean, psychologists of the world tell us, like, is that, is that how, how that works? I believe that some psychologists uh, think that that is a reasonable technique to use in certain situations. Yes, they're not psychologists that I would choose to go seek to. Out. <laughs> yeah. So this was my, I had not even met this psychologist yet, and this was my, my introduction <laughs> to her. And I went into that session. This would become the first medical profession professional I had ever told. It took me sort of the whole session to kind of, I sort of worked backwards. I was like, this is, these are the things that are happening right now. And I sort of worked backwards and eventually told her about the sexual assault. And she, it was like she didn't even hear it. I would say it was probably 16 at that point, maybe 17. She berated me for the amount of uh, pot that I was smoking, told me that I would never get better unless I quit. She basically could not treat me until I quit. She gave me a number for a, like a quit line in Australia and she basically just sent me off. She, she barely acknowledged. I had told her that I had been sexually assaulted. It felt like she was almost more concerned with the crime that you had committed, crime in inverted commas, than she was with the crime that was far more important that had been committed against you. I don't, I don't know. I don't know how as a, as a medical professional you can talk to like an underage teenage girl and hear that they have been sexually assaulted and say nothing. I don't know. It was baffling to me and it was very, very damaging to my my ability to then, you know, seek out and develop healthy relationships with, with other psychologists. As I've gotten older, I've had more relationships with psychologists. I've figured out how to find, like, how to seek out the psychologists that will be more helpful to me and will need less of that, me educating them and more of them doing their jobs. <laughs> Would you mind talking about that? Because I get asked that question a lot. In fact, just the other day, I was catching up with someone I hadn't seen for a while because she heard the podcast. She's like, hey, so my GP told me that he thinks I have anxiety, told me to go find someone, but I have no idea where to start. What would be your advice? You know, what would you be looking for? How would you approach that? In Australia, at least, we, the, we have a kind of a database. I do things like that. So I use internet searches and whatever of those kinds of technologies that I can find. Often you can kind of search for specialties with keywords like PTSD, trauma, sexual assault. Word of mouth also tends to be quite good. So I usually use criteria like am I close, you know, somewhere that's, that's easy to get to, someone that has a specialty in, in PTSD. Well, almost all of my medical professionals now I, would, I tend to seek out women rather than men. You've talked about PTSD in terms of being an anxiety disorder. Uh, you mentioned that you've had panic attacks. What are some of the other symptoms and experiences you've had with PTSD? I have uh, things like just in an increased sort of general level of anxiety. It's basically like, I don't know, you, you know you've had PTSD or something like that for, for so long that your general anxiety response is kind of heightened you're more likely to just kind of be at a higher level of kind of cortisol and, and things like that in your system. So it's things like, you know, being, being startled easily, like loud noises, being sort of hyper aware of, of dangerous situations, really strong responses to, and then sometimes quite like avoidance of depictions of sexual assault in media. And especially if I'm a bit blindsided by 
something like that. Um, and maybe if I'm having a particularly fragile day, like those things can still affect me quite strongly. I don't really experience panic attacks so much anymore, but it's more likely to manifest in just taking up a lot of my mental space. So it's like I will, you know, read about something or see something and and that would just sort of be in my head with me for a day or two or a week maybe if if it was particularly strong. I also have had problems with sleep. Now I now manage that quite well. I probably sleep more than than the average person, but problems with insomnia. I was pretty much agoraphobic for probably about six months, maybe a year um, at, at some of my worst times. That's when I was having a lot of panic attacks and I was basically, I felt safe in my house, my sister's house and like the shops down the road from my house. It's nowhere near as bad as it was, but I still occasionally like I'll be at home in my apartment on, you know, an evening, like maybe eight or nine o'clock and think I forgot to buy milk. And I'll have that thought pattern of like, you're in your nice, like safe space right now. Are you sure you want to leave? Is it worth leaving your nice, nice safe space? And sometimes the answer is no. <laughs> sometimes it's still like, eh, you know what? I'm, I'm happy here without that thing. I'm projecting that if you live with anxiety, it's not just that a decision needs to be taken. It's all thinking around the decision. And then after you've made the decision, thinking about whether it was the right decision or not, yeah. right? Yeah. And it can be very, very exhausting to just be going through those thought processes constantly. So that's the first part of Lauren's story. When you speak to Lauren, she's confident and funny. It's almost hard to imagine the journey she's been through, from dropping out of high school, telling her mum that she was raped, having bad side effects from medicine that was supposed to help her, and seeing a psychologist she'd heard shouting at other patients. On the way, Lauren had to learn how to manage the panic attacks that come with PTSD. We live in a society where women aren't always taken seriously when they report sexual assault. If there's one thing you take out of this section, it should be Lauren's advice for how to support somebody who confides in you that they've been sexually assaulted. Lauren's advice is listen, show support, and recognize their courage and bravery in speaking up. Never ask questions that diminish the experience or suggest it might somehow have been their fault. As we move into the second part of Lauren's story, we're going to hear more about how she's learned to manage PTSD. You mentioned that you tried Zoloft and it had some pretty ugly side effects. So where did you go from there? Did you continue with uh, medication or did that put you off that? that path uh, i took the zoloft had the the quite common uh, side effect of the increased suicide ideation you know then you know proceeded to have that suicide attempt and it was actually the psychologist that i had assigned from the the women's and children's hospital that i ended up in put me on something called metazapine also an antidepressant but um often used for people with more of those kind of anxiety symptoms and less of the depressive symptoms um, has can have quite a sedative effect i was on that for a while that that helped i've had breaks from it i'm currently on a very low dose of it right now i'm not actually sure that i need it right now but the last time i tried to come off it just to sort of test that theory the withdrawal symptoms were absolutely atrocious i was just not coping i didn't make it through 
that withdrawal period. And so I went back onto the lowest dose that was not giving me withdrawal symptoms. And I've been on that now for like two years because <laughs> I haven't, haven't been able to bite the bullet and, and try again. Maybe you could talk a little about how, you know, as you've come onto and gone off these medications, what's that process been like? And what advice would you give to somebody who, you know, is coming off something or going on to a new medication? So I guess this is advice that I would give people in regards to, we talked about earlier, finding psychologists or medical professionals and things like that as well, is like, it's okay for things to not work, like, and to accept that they're not working and try something else. And it can be really hard. It's, it's, it's quite an exhausting process to go through, to be trying something and, and then kind of go like, nope, this is not, this is not helping um, or it's making things worse. Even I have to try something else, especially with antidepressants that can often take, you know, up to six months to be having kind of their full effect on you. But yeah, like not, I don't know, not taking everything necessarily at face value, um, being really aware of the side effects that you might experience and which, which are the sort of the worst ones. Try and define for yourself, I suppose, what kinds of side effects might be acceptable and what might be unacceptable rather than just accepting it all. I think especially when it comes to uh, antidepressants that increase suicide ideation and that increase like kind of risk of of suicide attempt is something obviously to keep a really really close eye on it's not something that me or I believe like my mother at the time me being underage that we were told about when we were given the Zoloft and that was given by a GP not a mental health professional she in fact gave us samples from the office so we didn't have an opportunity to to talk to a chemist either so I was angry about that <laughs> as you should be because you were completely uninformed of how I mean you know in a very literal sense what could have ended your life there was a period where I was just like all of these things are horrible like Zoloft specifically is evil because it has this side effect and things like that and then I you know I had to slowly kind of come to terms with the fact that it was actually it was the the way that I was put on that the way that it was prescribed there were all contributing factors to the reaction that I had to it and the way that we we didn't really know how to deal with that reaction. You know, when you get any medication in the US, there's like four sheets of A4 of potential side effects. So this would be a situation where reading that documentation and asking questions, I think is really, really important. That's true. And there's also an element of like reading that documentation can be really scary and it can put people off trying something that could be helpful to them. So I don't know, I guess it's about keeping those things in perspective. It's like you said, sometimes the, that list of things could be totally irrelevant to the things that like to what you will experience like this. There's really extreme stuff on there that would happen to like less than 1% of the people who take that medication. I think it's also about having a, like a trusting relationship with the medical professional who is prescribing the medication and being able to have conversations with them about side effects and and to be able to see them at reasonable intervals within that that sort of starting period as well. For me, I think I would prefer to go see somebody who is an expert in the field, particularly with you know mental health, which I think is different than physical health. Just feels like a psychologist, psychiatrist is better equipped to explain side effects, have dialogue about it, et cetera, et cetera. I've usually seen psychologists rather than psychiatrists. I assume the distinction is the same in America, but uh, in Australia, like psychiatrists are the people who can prescribe medication. Psychologists cannot legally prescribe medication. I guess I've gotten into a place where I found medications that work and I have ongoing kind of those prescriptions managed by my GP. But that was, you know, that's something that I'm now comfortable with because I have, you know, I, I understand my relationship with those those medications of which 
um, as I said, um, metazapine is one, um, and also Valium. I always have it with me. I rarely take it anymore. I think I've gotten one script of like 15 pills for this entire year and I have not been through them. So Got it. Good. <laughs> that's really nice to, yeah, awesome. um, to be in that place. It's knowing what works for you. Yes. Right? Yeah, absolutely. Before we dive deep into work, talked about therapy um, or going to see a psychologist, which I'm, I think includes some aspect of sort of talk therapy. And you try different medications. You have a couple that, um, you know, that you have access to right now. What other things do you do to help you manage your PTSD? So I've done uh, a lot of cognitive behavioral therapy. Um, that was kind of the first, the first psych that I, that I really sort of got along with. And um, I saw her for some many years. Uh, that was kind of her uh, specialty. She helped me a lot with just recognizing panic attacks as they were building up rather than as they were happening, uh, kind of, yeah, gaining, gaining more control over them, partly with things like the Valium, but also with just calming myself down, changing my, my sort of thought patterns, getting myself into a safer environment, things like that. That's essentially being more aware of your thoughts and better prepared to deal with them, having a, a plan in place to steer them in a better direction. And in some cases, like also physical, there's sort of physical things that you can do to, to, help prevent panic attacks as you feel them coming on and so they're things like um proactive like hyperventilation so like something that people will say things like take deep breaths a lot um, and that's actually often not the best way to deal with that because it fills your body with oxygen which actually kind of increase your like uh, level of energy so it's things like breathing into you know a bag or like you know down into your sweater or something like that that's like still like long like kind of slow breaths will help to calm you but something that that doesn't increase your the level of oxygen in your blood too much something that sort of takes control of your your physical response of things so just like a, a brisk walk or something like that can be really helpful like a, or just a little bit of gentle exercise you know might not be a walk depending on your where you are your your situation I've also done some EMDR, so eye movement desensitization and reprocessing, I believe, <laughs> um, which is I mean, basically traumatic memories. reason that we have these responses to them is that we don't sort of process them in the same way that we process a normal memory. They, they end up being this anomaly that sort of sticks out as, as being this super important thing that you need to pay attention to all of the time or you might get hurt. EMDR is uh, the process of recalling a traumatic memory in a controlled environment, having someone control your eye movement to, to I think it mimics like REM sleep. So you try to mimic the physical aspect of, of processing a memory whilst actively recalling it rather than you know, allowing yourself to do it while sleeping. Clinical hypnosis as well, which some people will hear that and think that sounds like a load of hooey. And I was probably one of them to begin with. Oh, hypnosis like isn't that <laughs> isn't that fake isn't that like some some ridiculous thing that people like used to quit smoking and it doesn't actually work but like it does and can by by way of like i guess similar kind of mechanisms it's just being in that really controlled environment sort of either recalling something or actually envisioning something that you might want or like a another version of yourself that is in a better place and trying to like embed those kind of different way of seeing yourself in the world different way of kind of of experiencing the world 
And those are things that don't have as sort of an immediate and like concrete sort of outcomes. So it can be hard to tell if they're working, how well they're working. What's coming clear to me here is that you said, I thought of hypnosis as some kind of hooey. I think what's come clear to me as we've talked about that or medication is to keep an open mind because you don't know what's going to work for you. Be willing to try different things to find that combination of things that, that works for you. I sometimes described it as like it's a it's a jigsaw puzzle, but it's a jigsaw puzzle that like the jigsaw keeps changing. Yeah. <laughs> you have to find new pieces for it, you know? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And I think that's, I mean, that's a really interesting aspect that of my recovery that I have had to learn is that things that are helpful in in some part, like, you know, certain times, often when things are really, really bad, become the things that stop you from continuing to get better once you reach certain turning points. So yeah, like coping mechanisms can become outdated and then they become really kind of detrimental and they, they can stop you from moving forward. So things like the, the psychologist who, who told me that I would never get better unless I stopped smoking cannabis. I mean, she was wrong. <laughs> I did get like, I got a lot better whilst still smoking. It was actually, I think for me, a reasonably good coping mechanism for the situation I was in. Yet there was still a time when I, when I needed to accept that it was doing me more harm than good um, eventually. And by that point, it was like I had gotten to a place where I was doing so, so much better that when you look around and you see like, okay, which things can I sort of strategically look at and say, this will make a, a positive impact on my, on my life. But those things change. You know, once you move past some things like I'm having panic, panic attacks every day, I can't leave my house, like maybe five people in the world who I actually trust and I don't trust anyone else. Um, things like that you move on from those sorts of things and then you can start looking at like it has these side effects that are not great i wonder what it would what i would be like if i was not smoking or like my life's practically been on hold for you know almost a decade like i haven't done all of the normal things that someone does in their in their late teens and and early 20s and well enough now that like okay well maybe i should look at studying some sort of tertiary education like I should look at what kind of career I might want to have. And some people, I think, find it really, really hard to move past those, those kind of milestones. And they just don't, they don't really know how to adapt to like an increased level of capacity because they've, they've been used to it for so long. Lauren's experience learning to manage PTSD is so similar to other silent superheroes we've heard from. She's needed different tools at different points on the journey. At one point, she self-medicated with pot. At other times, she's used anxiety medication. She's experimented with different psychologists and tried cognitive behavioral therapy and EMDR. And she's learned how to see a panic attack coming on and has tools she can use to manage it. We talk often about the side effects of medication on silent superheroes. And Lauren reminded me how important it is to make sure that you understand the potential side effects when you're trying a new medication. I think some doctors and psychiatrists are good at explaining what those side effects might be, but I think it's equally true that some aren't. So be sure to ask what side effects are the most common and what to look for to detect some of the more serious side effects. If you don't get what you need by asking, go read the documentation. 
And of course, make sure somebody else knows what the potential side effects are, so they can be on the lookout for them too. If a medication's not working for you, it's okay to stop, but make sure you stop under the supervision of your care provider. Lauren's journey is pretty incredible. She describes how she comes from a low-income background and fought to become a software engineer, which on its own is hard and can be even harder if you're a woman. In the next section, Lauren's going to talk about her experiences at work, where her PTSD has shown up and the environment she now works in that's created some emotional safety to be herself and talk about her experiences. So we've talked about you know what has happened to you and the experiences you've had since. We've talked about how you're managing PTSD in lots of different ways. Let's talk about work. How has PTSD shown up in and affected you from a work perspective? I've been thinking about this a bit like, you know, ever since we, I guess, had our first chat and I decided to do this and I find it hard to put into words, I think. PTSD has become such a, like this low level noise in my life. It's just this accepted thing that I sort of live with. And I find it hard to pinpoint areas of effect anymore, I think. Whereas they used to be really, really clear when it was like, I have a panic attack or, you know, I have this response to this thing. It's now such a a more sort of general, always there sort of thing. Are there situations you find at work that can exacerbate some of those symptoms, whether it's now or in the past? Before I started working as an engineer, um, I worked as a cleaner. I was, so I was studying software development and working this, this sort of crappy hourly cleaning job that was in the afternoons that suited me quite well. But there were there were times there where I would be sort of the only person in, in an office building cleaning what I assumed would be like an empty office building, but occasionally there would be just individual people like working late. That was sometimes a little bit jarring, like especially if there were men. It was, oh, oh, I'm like, yeah, I'm here alone with this person that I don't know. I think I've gotten much better in this, but it probably, I sort of avoid confrontation as like many, many people do. Like, you know, many people who have no problem with like an anxiety disorder or anything like that also just avoid confrontation because it's not pleasant. I think there's this added element of, of having an anxiety disorder that you worry if you get into confrontational or stressful sort of situations with someone that, that I will respond really emotionally, that maybe something could cause me to have a panic attack or just to have such a, this heightened level of emotion that I that I don't feel like I'm responding in a professional way. It's interesting that you associate being emotional at work with being unprofessional. It is, right? And I don't, I should preface that I don't think that it necessarily is. And there's definitely times when I've been emotional at work and I have thought that that was a reasonable thing and that I've dealt with other people who've been emotional at work and not thought any less of them or that they were being unprofessional in that situation. But you are responding to the stereotype, maybe isn't quite the right word, but you're responding to the prevailing perception i think that work is not a place for emotion yeah i think so which is really unfortunate um (laughs) that that we feel like that hence this conversation right yeah so we start to understand that we're all many people you know live with things that are not immediately obvious are having an emotional impact on how they show up and their ability to to do their job and situations in which they thrive and those that they that they don't yeah absolutely and you know, and even people who are not suffering from some sort of diagnosable mental health disorder, we just have emotions. <laughs> it's, yeah, it's really not something that I think is healthy to try and completely remove from your work life. But there is a struggle of managing them and 
the line that different people have between what they consider to be like professional behavior and what they consider to be like kind of over that line, it's probably shifts, you know, there's a big window, I would say. And some people would say that, you know, you shouldn't be showing any emotion at work. I feel like the place you work is quite progressive. Yeah, I would agree. What are things do you think that are done differently there than in other maybe less progressive workplaces as it relates to mental health? So there's lots of aspects of what we do that I think would kind of be a a differentiating point. The fact that, I mean, we are an employee feedback platform. Like, So what we do is empower individual employees and their organizations to, to kind of have their say and then to consume and respond to that feedback in a constructive way that helps them sort of make their companies better, you know, makes their individual work lives better. We use all of our tools internally. For one thing, there's just that it's like everyone has an opportunity to give feedback about their experiences at work. It's not just that there is a feedback platform and that you can talk to your superiors, I think. I think it's also that you know that action will be taken. You'll know that feedback will be heard. Yeah, absolutely. And so, and that's a huge part of it is actually when you seek to get useful and honest feedback from people, that's something that they need to see and believe that it's actually going to have some kind of impact, that it's worth their time, you know, that that feedback won't be used against them in some way. Essentially what we're talking about here to some extent is trust and emotional safety. Yeah. And then I guess beyond the, the product that we actually kind of make and use there's all of these sort of different channels and different ways that we that we sort of support each other there's just individuals within the company that I know I can go to and they kind of hopefully know that they can kind of come to me when they need to talk about something like it's something I, I like about being a person who's quite open about their experiences is that it brings those people out of the woodwork and they either like open up about you know their own problems or they go like oh how do you like how do you discover that like what because I think I might be experiencing something similar but they just don't really know how to interact with the medical community or how to seek out diagnosis and things like that. We've just recently started an employee resource group around people with disabilities. It's gone down as a bit of a path. It was initially focused around people with invisible disabilities specifically because that was just what most of us you know, we're suffering from. We made the decision quite recently it was something that I and a couple other people in the group sort of pushed for us to just open it up to people who are experiencing disability in general. We're doing things like weekly meetings that are just like anyone can drop in and you can kind of share what's going on with you if you feel like it and just get a little bit of, of support from people, a little bit of commiseration sometimes. And we're all sort of still just learning how to do that, figuring out like the different kinds of support that different people need based on their personalities and the specific issues that they're working with. It's really hard. Like the first like kind of meeting that we had along the lines of, hey, let's, you know, let's get together and we can we can share some of the the issues that we that we're working with. I cried several times. Like it was really quite like an emotionally involved discussion. You know, it was a lot of like hearing things about people that either I knew but I guess I hadn't heard them describe it in such a complete way or it's seen, you know, seen it affect them as much. It was really kind of interesting and draining at the same time. You know, I like I talked about the like the rape and the sexual assault, but I kind of I did it quite quickly. Like it was, it was again that that process of managing other people's experience. You know, it was kind of like 
yeah, this thing happened. And, you know, and then I was like really, really anxious for a while. And like, now I'm mostly better and it's all fine. (laughs) (laughs) Covering a decade and a half of experience in, you know, like three sentences. (laughs) I find that ability even to say, you know what, I'm having a hard day is really powerful. I relatively new in a, um, a position at the moment and it's very open coming in about the bipolar that I live with. But the first time I felt myself slipping into the depression, I decided I was going to put a note on Slack and say, look, hey, you know, I've talked about stuff. Here's what's going on for me today. Like I can feel the, the start of you know, the grip of depression. You're going to see me probably, you know, just working in corners on my own most of the day, avoiding people. But, you know, I'm here. If you need me, got a question, come find me. You know, that's okay. But just wanted you to know why I might be behaving in a different way. And the team accepted it really well and asked if there was anything that, you know, that they could do to help and support, which was great. And I felt better. And I think I came out of it more quickly because I knew that those people were accepting me for who I was and the experience that I was having. And I didn't have to expend the psychological effort to pretend I was fine. And I I think also, I guess, not having to expend too much of that effort to explain what is happening. I've definitely had experiences at work where I've had a hard time just going, like, you know, kind of going to my team lead at the time and been like, this is what's happening. I'm not sleeping very well. I'm like, I'm quite emotional. I'm, you know, I'm just, I'm stressed out. I don't want to take time off because I know that like actually being here and having the distraction of work is a good thing. I just need like some boring work that I can kind of do in my sleep. Like, let me just like go back to just writing some, some really boring code um, and not pairing too much. Like just, and I sort of just laid out, I was like, these are the things that I need and I might come in a little bit later. And because of the sleep issues, my team lead was just like, yep. I, because I was, I didn't need to go too much into exactly what I was experiencing and why, because I was able to tell them what I needed out of my work situation at the time. And they could just provide that and they didn't need to know the rest. And it was really, really like, that was an incredibly positive experience that I had. And there's important points that come out of that for me, which is for many people who live with, with a mental illness, being at work can be better than being at home and ruminating on your own about whatever you've got going on, right? So being, even though when I'm depressed, I don't want to be around people. Sometimes it's better for me to have something to do, people to be around. And I think the point there is that it should be my choice about whether, you know, like, do I need to take some time off, you know, whether it's a day or like a week to get myself into the right place, or do I not? And that's kind of my, as the individual, that that should ideally be something I understand and I get to get to choose. Yeah, it's not always the best thing. You're talking about manifestations of my anxiety as it stands today. And I think there was so much time when I was not able to work. Like I was just not mentally in a place where I could be a reliable employee, like know that I would be well enough to do that. And and I came from quite a low uh, income sort of family and then you know and I went like almost like day and night from from that to an engineering job moving to like one of the biggest cities in Australia and one of the aspects of my anxiety definitely sort of manifests in what if I get worse again like either physically or 
or mentally, like I've had, you know, had some physical problems and I just kind of understand like anyone can just sort of get sick at any time. You don't, it's not necessarily something that you have control over. So to some extent, like the idea of kind of taking time off at times when I am having, you know, not having, maybe not having the best day mentally, like that can really just spiral into those kinds of thought patterns of like, you can't do this you're not meant to be in this place. You're not meant to have this job, like how it's all going to crumble. You're going to have to move back to your hometown and like live with your mom. And, <laughs> you know, you'll be back in that place where I was like three years ago. It's very easy for those storylines to take hold. Yeah. If I were to give you a magic wand or any kind of implement that can change things with very little effort, you could change something about every workplace, but you can't change the people. What would you change? When we talk about work and the effect that my anxiety has had on on my job and things like that, and I think in many ways it's sort of the other way around. Like my job has had such a a positive impact on my mental well-being and it's partly like the people there are amazing and I have lots of support and, you know, I, I work in a wonderful company and all of those things. But it's also just the stress of work, it was nothing compared to the stress of being poor, to be quite honest. That's how I've personally felt. And I know I've met people who feel very much the opposite. Like, I don't want to deal with any of that. I'd rather be poor. And that's their, um, the way that they feel and that's fine. But for me, it's definitely been this very, very positive kind of inverse effect rather than work having this negative impact and stress. It's been incredibly empowering. I'm so grateful to hear, hear that because sometimes it's easy to talk about the things that work and it doesn't do for your mental health, but important to remember that it can have a very positive impact. It's hard to know if you should share your experience of mental illness in your workplace. It's a very individual situation. I decided to talk about my mental illness at work to create a safe space for others. Lauren and her colleagues created an employee resource group where they could get together and share their authentic experiences. And even having one person you can talk to goes a long way to helping you feel less alone at work. I was talking to an HR colleague recently who was deciding how best to support an employee who was having an anxiety attack. Their instinct was to send that person home. And that's not a bad instinct. But as Lauren reminds us, work can be a positive influence on your mental health. Being home from work can leave you isolated and feeling alone. As always with decisions about mental illness, there's no right answer that works for every person in every situation. If you're trying to figure out how best to support someone who's in a crisis or having a hard time, the best thing to do is ask them and let them decide what's the best thing for them right at that moment. So let's get back to Lauren. As we'd been recording, I'd noticed that she'd flip between saying sexual assault and rape, and I wanted to understand how she thought about those two words and whether they were different all the same. I have a clarifying question. I've heard you say alternate between saying sexual assault and and rape. And I just wanted to reflect that to you and just see what what comes back. So as I said, I I still have a bit of trouble actually saying the word rape. I don't know that I can explain it particularly well. It's uh, when my PTSD was particularly bad, I had trouble even like thinking about the word like I would it was a trigger for me it was hard for me to hear someone else say it it was hard for me to see it like written down or even like as a as a part of other words 
it, you know, it was that affecting to me. I think I've kind of broken that down quite a lot, but I still feel more comfortable a lot of the time just saying sexual assault, even though it's a much less specific term for what happened to me. I think for one, I don't know, I guess it's, it's quite a harsh word. It's a four-letter word. It's, it's short. It's very, very to the point. Sexual assault, I think, when I've spoken about managing other people's reaction to what's happened to me and the way that I express what's happened to me to others, I feel sometimes that saying sexual assault sort of allows people to take in some aspect of what I've been through without having to, I guess, be confronted with the, the specifics of it like to allow people to just go like, well, that was sexual assault is already a very, very bad thing in a whole, like, but it's just this, it's this big sort of cloud of possible experiences and some are worse than others. And I guess based on how people respond to that, I can maybe go into more detail or less detail or. So it's kind of a, it's a stepping stone. Yeah. Gives you the opportunity to decide how deep you want to go in that particular conversation. Thank you. If there was somebody listening to this who had recently been the victim of rape and hadn't yet talked to anybody about it, what would you what would you want them to know? Finding safe people to talk about what happened to you is really important. If you don't feel like you have those safe people in your friends or your family like as a first step there will almost definitely be sexual assault like counseling services somewhere around you, even if they're, you know, even if you need to access them via like telephone or, you know, if you're in sort of a more remote community, if you're in a city, then like by all means, there will be something. It's not easy, (laughs) but things like can get better. If you do tell someone and that conversation doesn't go well, it's okay to like, shut it down to say, no, I don't want to talk about this anymore and never bring it up with that person again. If that's what you, you feel like the, the best choice is. And it doesn't mean that the same conversation will go, uh, the next conversation will go that same way. I've talked obviously like throughout the, the podcast, about having some positive conversations and having some really, really negative ones. Like perseverance is probably the biggest key. If you could there's someone listening who was managing PTSD, you know, maybe PTSD resulting from a, a sexual assault. What would you what would you want them to know? What do you want to say to them? A similar sentiment, like things will get better. Um, finding good mental health like care professionals is really, really valuable. Like we discussed, don't be too afraid to to try different aspects of things that might work, but also don't be afraid to like to let them go when they're not working. It's, it's a lot of trial and error, unfortunately, and it could be a really, really hard path. I think so much of, I guess, my message when it comes to medication and psychologists, like mental health professionals, all of these things, and it comes up a lot with people with sexual assault history is kind of empowerment. Oftentimes kind of the medical community interacting with the medical community can feel disempowering in some ways. It's like you have this person who's meant to know more than you do and it can be very didactic telling you what to do. I would say be wary of those kinds of relationships and try to build up relationships and find doctors that you can have conversations with and you can have these like feedback loops that 
that make you feel empowered about your own treatment because taking back sort of that that feeling of empowerment in all aspects of your life is really important. You said there was another aspect of work you wanted to, to talk about. What was What was that? So one of my personal coping mechanisms that I have developed, and, and in some ways I had it bef- well before the PTSD, it's just quite a dark sense of humor and I'm like a readiness to kind of make fun of and laugh at some really horrific things. <laughs> and often that's, it's sort of directed inwards usually, like I make jokes about myself, my own experiences and, and things like that. Or there's, you know, the punching up, you know, so you make a rape joke, you know, you want the butt of that joke to be the rapist, like not the victim things like that. But that's been an interesting part of my personality to manage within a professional (laughs) setting (laughs) because I was in very much in a social environment before I started my engineering job where whatever I said was fine. Pretty much everyone knew like my my status as a sexual assault victim. There was all of this context around the the jokes that I would make. I think I definitely have had a, a situation or two in a professional setting where I have not really caught myself early enough and I've gone and I've made like this joke and then realize like you know people's reaction is just this like this one of sort of like horror and they don't know how to respond and you've put them in a really awkward position because they can't they can't laugh at that (laughs) they don't they don't really have the context to laugh with me so I mean I've learned to like catch myself a little bit more like dull that a little bit and find the people that do have the right amount of context and that I can say hey, I do this. This is one of the ways that I cope with things that have happened to me in my life. And if you are happy to be a part of that, then like, let's, you know, let's do it together. So being deliberate and conscious of how you deploy your coping mechanisms and with whom you deploy them. Yeah, absolutely. And yeah, I think one of the things I've discovered is that if you get into that situation where you've made this offensive joke, trying to explain to a group of people that it's okay that I made that joke because I'm a rake victim. It really doesn't help. <laughs> help. <laughs> really just makes this worse. <laughs> it's super awkward. Um, <laughs> I probably don't have good advice about how to deal with that situation once you're in it. You probably just need to like swallow your pride and be like, that was a terrible thing to say. I'm sorry. <laughs> Maybe just don't get into it in the first place is the advice yeah. here. Like watch where you crack your rape jokes. That's the, that's the key here, right? <laughs> You did a remarkable job there of bringing the full range of emotions through this podcast because we started in a very different place than thank you yeah than, we, than really we did. ended and I appreciate your I could replay a word to you bravery in having this conversation and everything that you've done to address you know an experience that you didn't choose and wouldn't have chosen so I want to say thank you for for being here and being part of the show thank you so much for having me it's been wonderful. No worries. Cheers, Lauren. Bye. So that's Lauren's incredible story of strength and courage. Mental illness is often brought on by some kind of trauma. I can't imagine what it was like for Lauren to have a sense of safety shattered at such a young age. It's taken grit and determination to get where she is today, and I'm grateful she made the journey. If you've been a victim of sexual assault and you've been silently living with it, I hope Lauren's story encourages you to talk to somebody that you trust. And I think her advice applies to all sorts of different trauma. It's so easy to avoid talking about it. We don't want to be a burden. We fear it'll be embarrassing or that we won't be heard. We don't want people to think worse of us because of the things that have happened to us that are outside of our control. 
I know for me, my life didn't start getting better until I learned how to talk about the stuff. And I hope you've heard the same has been true for Lauren. Remember, Lauren and I are two people talking about our personal experience of mental illness. If you have something you need to talk about, there are some numbers you can call at the end of this podcast. If you're considering making a change to your treatment plan, please consult with your medical provider. If you like what you've heard in today's episode, please consider leaving us a rating and a review on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. If you want to hear more about new episodes as they're released, you can sign up for our newsletter at silentsuperheroes.com or you can follow us on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash silentsuperheroes. Take your mental health seriously. If you need to speak to someone, you can call 1-800-273-8255 or text crisistextline.org at 741-741. Both provide 24-7 confidential counseling to people in the United States. Worldwide, visit iasp.info slash resources slash crisis underscore centers slash to help others find the silent superheroes podcast please leave a review on itunes or your favorite podcasting service